in an ever-changing world, God does not change. He is a fixed point, an anchor for our souls, firm and secure. We have been reflecting lately on God's attributes, and today we're going to zoom in on God's goodness. Maybe you know the refrain, God is good all the time, and all the time, God is good. Some days, it's easier to say that than others. Some days, God's goodness is so evident, his generosity so abundant, that we are just suffuse with gratitude and joy. Other days, our circumstances are so disorienting, so painful, that we wonder how a good God could possibly have allowed them. But it's not just our circumstances that cause us to doubt God's goodness. Sometimes our core beliefs about God get in the way too. One of our upcoming uh, GROW classes is on a book by, uh, by James Bryan Smith called uh, The Good and Beautiful God. Uh, one of the first chapters is about God's goodness. I'm going to share some of his insights with you today. But Smith begins this chapter by telling a story. He writes this. The doctors told my wife and me that the little girl that she had been carrying for eight months had a rare chromosomal disorder that would likely cause her to die at birth. We went home completely disoriented and full of tears. Up to that point in my life, nothing terrible had happened to me. Now I was faced with one of life's worst problems, dealing with the coming death of a child. How does a Christian, one who believes in the goodness of God, respond to something so tragic and heartbreaking? It turned out that the doctor's prognosis was wrong. She did have a chromosomal disorder, but not one that was immediately fatal. Our little Madeline survived the birth, but weighed only a few pounds. She had a heart defect, was deaf, and could not keep food down. The medical experts then told us that she would not live more than a year or two. During that time, both my wife and I felt as if we'd been kicked in the stomach. One day, a pastor I had known for years took me to lunch in an effort to comfort me. While I was in the middle of eating my salad, he asked, Who sinned, Jim? You or your wife? I said, Excuse me? What do you mean? He said, well, one of you or both of you must have sinned at some point to have caused this to happen. That question, uh, who sinned, while spiritually abusive, didn't come out of nowhere. For most of human history, people have experienced the world as dangerous and unpredictable. I mean, you just never know from year to year if your crops would fail, if you'd survive childbirth if disease or war would ravage your community. And so as a result, many of our ancestors concluded that the gods must be angry and capricious. Most ancient religions were built on the assumption that the gods must be appeased. So if you perform the right rituals in the right way, you can get God on your side. You can, you can get the gods to protect you and your loved ones and give you a bountiful harvest. So ancient worshipers would would make sacrifices, sometimes even human sacrifices, in an attempt to appease the gods and secure themselves. And where monotheistic religions emerged, worshipers had to do two things to appease their god. They had to perform rituals and live moral lives. They had to worship the right way and behave the right way. And if you didn't, 
God would be angry and things would go south. If you look back on history, so much of worship has been motivated by fear and the desire to gain some control over a dangerous and unpredictable world. And it's a slippery slope, this theology, because if I believe that God will only protect and bless me if I perform well, it's not too long of a walk to where I say, if I suffer, it must be because I've done something wrong. And that's what Job's friends were saying to Job. Job was a righteous man. He had great wealth. And then in one day, he lost his health, wealth, and his children. His friends came to him and said, Job, you're obviously suffering, and that means you obviously did something horribly, horribly wrong. And Job says, I don't think so. I've racked my brain, but I can't think of anything that I've done that would have brought all this upon me. And his friends say, who are you kidding? Just admit you messed up and that you're getting exactly what you deserve. That's what they believe, that if you suffer, it's because you sinned. By the way, when God speaks at the end of the book, he has some hard words for Job's friends. But this ancient belief that the gods are angry and must be appeased, this superstition that, that right living leads to blessing and wrong living leads to suffering has followed us into the modern world. You remember that scene in The Sound of Music when Maria and Captain Von Trapp realize that they're in love with each other. And they sing that ridiculous song that goes, here you are, standing there loving me, whether or not you should. Somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. There it is. Good things are happening to me. It must be because I was good, because good things only happen to good people. We heard the exact opposite after 9-11. At least a few prominent Christian leaders took to the airwaves to say, this is God's judgment on America. And then they rattled off a long list of sins that conveniently weren't their sins. Bad things are happening. It must be because God is angry at our sin. Not my sin, of course, other people's sin. And we hear similar things in the wake of natural disasters and mass shootings and global pandemics. A survey conducted by uh, Baylor University revealed that 37% of American Christians believe in this kind of a God. A God who is angry, capricious, and ready to punish us in real time just as soon as we screw up. It's Christianity reduced to karma. What goes around comes around. You, you reap what you sow. Well, one of the many problems with this view of God is that it doesn't actually relieve any fears. It just transfers them from disease and drought to, to God himself. Since I can't control the weather... Well, maybe I can control God. Maybe if I scratch his back, he'll scratch mine. Maybe if I light a candle or, or give some money or volunteer my time or, or go to church more often than not, God will bless me and protect me. Of course, this view of God not only leads to spiritual abuse, it leads to disillusionment. What happens when I see evil people flourishing or good people suffering? What happens when I don't get what I think I deserve? I become cynical and jaded. In this system, is God good? I have no idea. I'm just trying to stay on his good side. Maybe no one's ever asked you point blank, who sinned? 
in some vain attempt to explain your suffering. But I bet you've encountered this narrative, this idea that God is angry, that he must be appeased, and that your blessing is contingent on your performance. And if that's your view of God, your God might be just, but I'm not so sure he's good. We've said it many times. If you want to know what God is really like, look at Jesus. Look at God in the flesh. So what does Jesus make of this narrative? Does he put any stock in the idea that people suffer because they sin? Well, we don't have to wonder because people asked Jesus point blank on at least two occasions. The first is found in Luke 13. Verse 1 says, Now there were some present at the time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. So here's what had happened. The Roman army had invaded the temple and killed Jewish worshipers in cold blood. And so the crowd wanted to know what those worshipers had done to deserve that. The second time this topic comes up is found in John chapter 9. As Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Whose fault is it? How does Jesus respond? Let's go back to Luke 13. Jesus answered, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. What's Jesus doing? He's spinning things around. He's saying when tragedy strikes, don't point fingers at other people. Don't speculate. Examine yourself. Search your own heart. Where do you stand with God? Jesus is making it clear that there is no correlation between one's religious or moral performance and the time and manner of their death. Instead, he warns the people that a, a tragedy like the ones they're talking about could happen to anyone at any time. Now, what about this man who was born blind? Now, people want to know, who sinned? Jesus says, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. That is definitely not the scripture. <laughs> what did Jesus say? I, uh, let, me, let me pull it up here, folks. He says, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. So once again, Jesus rejects the question. He was born blind, not because someone sinned, 
but so that the works of God may be displayed in him. Jesus views this man's blindness not as evidence of God's judgment, but as a challenge and an opportunity to bring healing and restoration to his life. Jesus is saying that there is no correlation between blindness and sin. Rather, blindness is part of the curse that Jesus came to undo. When Jesus sees pain, when Jesus sees debilitating weakness or poverty, his compassion is aroused. He feels pain for that person. He thinks about the shalom that he wants for them, and he acts in order to bring it about. We see this over and over again throughout the Gospels. Like in Luke 7, when Jesus stumbles upon the funeral of a widow's only son. Luke writes, when Jesus saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, don't cry. And then he went up and he touched the bier that they were carrying him on, and the bearer stood still. And Jesus said, young man, I say to you, get up. And the dead man sat up and began to talk. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. When a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years snuck up behind Jesus in a crowd and touched the, the hem of his robe, she was instantly healed. And Jesus could feel power leaving him, and he stopped. And he refused to move along until he saw the woman, heard her story, and commended her faith. Jesus has compassion on the sick, on the hungry, on the grieving, on the outcasts. He even has compassion on notorious sinners like tax collectors and prostitutes. There's this poignant scene toward the end of Luke's gospel when Jesus is approaching Jerusalem. And he looks out over the city and he weeps because he knows that the inhabitants of the city are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Do you see how Jesus, God in the flesh, responds to our pain, to our suffering, to our grief, to our physical weakness, to our confusion and isolation? His compassion is stirred. He is moved from within to draw near, to act on our behalf, and when he does, there are no screener questions. Jesus doesn't ask people, have you been good? Do you have any doubts? What have you done for me lately? There's none of that. In fact, Jesus' compassion is aroused by those who have absolutely nothing on their spiritual resume. His compassion is aroused by those who struggle with doubts, by those who've done absolutely everything wrong. Jesus had every opportunity to affirm that ancient narrative, but he refused. He refused to perpetuate that ancient dogma that God gives people only what they deserve. You know what he said instead? He said that uh, your Father in heaven causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. In other words, God blesses everyone, whether they deserve it or not. Some pray for rain for their crops. Others pray for sun for their picnics, but everyone gets both. Jesus says, if you're looking for a pattern, here it is. God is generous with everyone. That's the pattern. He's generous because he's good. We don't know why some people suffer more than others. 
We don't know why some people die sooner than others. We just don't know. What we do know is that the question who sinned is irrelevant. We all sin. And yes, God does get angry at sin. But anger is not one of God's attributes. Anger is a function of God's love. God gets mad at sin because sin harms his children. And God loves his children, even when we sin, because he's good. Why should we believe that God is good? Lots of reasons. A.W. Tozer says something really interesting. He says, there's really no other valid reason for our existence. <laughs> Think about it. How could we deserve to be born? How could, how could we possibly earn the opportunity to live? The very fact that you were born, the very fact that you have breath in your lungs today is a gift. The only reason that you exist is because God in his goodness gave you life. God is generous. God provides abundantly sun and rain and everything else that sustains us and helps us to grow. You know, God could have created a world that was fully functional, that was rugged and durable and utilitarian, but in his goodness, God also included breathtaking beauty as part of his creation. He could have created a world in which human beings help each other to survive, but he added the joys of family and friendship and love. God could have made us drones, you know, little worker bees, mindlessly dutiful and productive, but instead God gave us unique passions and gifts and callings. God reveals his goodness and redemption. Salvation was God's idea, not ours. God took the initiative. Jesus became poor so that we could become rich. Jesus disadvantaged himself in order to advantage us. Jesus suffered and died so that we could live forever. God withheld nothing from us, not even his son. God reveals his goodness through his patience. God is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. In the days of Noah, God said, it's going to rain. And then God waited 120 years before the flood came. God is not capricious. He is far more patient than you or I will ever be. When Jesus came into the world, he preached, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. Well, so far, God has given the world 2,000 years to repent. And we know why. 2 Peter 3.9 says, the Lord is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. 1 Timothy 2.4 says that God wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Jesus promised that the end would not come until every people group on earth had an opportunity to hear the good news of God's kingdom. God is so patient. He's patient because he's good. God reveals his goodness to us as we trust him personally. He gives us a savior who understands our weakness, who understands what it's like to be tempted, who knows what it's like to suffer. He gives us the Holy Spirit to comfort and convict and guide and equip us. The Spirit cultivates spiritual fruit and renews our character. 
the Spirit restores our joy and gives us a peace that surpasses all understanding. In His goodness, God gives us a spiritual family, a global network of brothers and sisters who share our hope and our mission, who enter into our joys and sorrows, who show us the love of Christ. God in His goodness promises us eternal life with Him. Think of all the grace, all the gifts, all the good things that you've experienced in your life so far. All of that, all of it together, is a drop in the bucket compared to what's coming. The vast majority of the good things God has planned for you are still in the future. The Apostle Paul writes, now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Now we live in a world that is groaning. Then we shall live in a world that has been released from its bondage to decay. Now we cry tears and struggle with doubts and worries and fears. Then our tears will be wiped away and our fears will be cast out forever. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Your wounds, your trauma, your tears, your sins will not have the last word. James Brian Smith, his daughter Madeline, died when she was two years old. He writes this. He says, a few years after Madeline died, I was in the middle of a day of solitude. My mind went over the last few years thinking about the pain of hearing the news from the doctors, the countless sleepless nights on hospital floors, and the dark and rainy day that we placed her body in the earth. I turned to God and said without thinking, maybe it would have been better if she had never been born. That was when I received one of the clearest experiences of God responding to me that I have ever experienced in my life. On this day, at that moment, a little voice penetrated my mind. The voice of a little girl. A voice I had never heard but immediately recognized as Madeline's. Daddy! You should never say that. If I had never been born, I would not be here now. I am so happy here in heaven. And one day, you and mom will come and see me, and we will live forever together. And there is more good that has happened because of me that you can't see now. But one day, you will understand. And then Smith writes, I know with certainty that God did not punish my daughter with a congenital illness because of the sins of my wife, me, or my daughter. And I know that God is just, and I also hold fast to the hope of heaven, a place where wrongs are made right and where I will understand fully. I believe all of this because of the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. No matter where I am, I can say with confidence, God is good all the time, and all the time, God is good. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your limitless goodness to us. Sometimes we admit it's hard to see, and yet when we step back, it's hard to miss. 
help us to respond to your goodness in three ways. With trust that expresses itself through obedience. With joy that expresses itself through praise. And with gratitude that expresses itself through generosity. Those who trust in you, God, ought to be the most joyful and the most generous people on earth. Show us your face that we might reflect your glory to others. In Jesus' name, amen.